These are the times for serious conversations inside and outside of your business. But in these serious times, we also need humor, humanity, and maybe some more aha types of moments. Today, we're talking about using anecdotes and stories to be an even more effective writer, speaker, and leader. It's Charlie Meacham on the Manage Your Message podcast. Welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow by talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in and welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast. I'm Jim Carr. I help professionals and entire organizations to get the most out of their everyday business conversations. Those are the ones that generate by far the most growth opportunities. Your specific situation coming out of the pandemic won't be the same as everyone else's. However, all of us are having or should be having some very different conversations than we had only a few months ago. And your customers and your customers' customers are also facing dramatic changes. Your market needs to hear from you in a certain way and consistently. And as we get into various stages of economic recovery, you and your team will need to adjust that message too. That doesn't necessarily mean changing your entire business model, and it doesn't mean changing your core mission or values, but it does mean some tough decisions about how everyone in your business should be talking about the business across virtual, digital, and more in-person paths of communication as those come back as well. It also means figuring out how to train, teach, coach, and learn in this new environment. That's what we address here on this podcast and what I consult and speak about my real business, what I wrote about in my book, The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. You can find that in paperback, Kindle, and audio versions wherever great business books are sold. You can also find a free sample on my website, jimcar.com. Briefly put, managing your message has three components. First, it's creating the message itself, the right words, stories, insights, and evidence you want your customers and prospects to know about. Second, it is equipping and growing a network of messengers, the very people who can help you share that message. And third, it's creating the management habits that will shape your culture and turn those improvements into an everyday business advantage. We bring all of this together for you because, simply put, it's much easier to grow your business all over again when you are a message manager. These days, it's harder than ever to break through the noise and to be heard. In our current environment of COVID-19, economic distress, and social unrest makes things even harder unless you can get your points across briefly and with some humor and humanity. Our guest today has some very timely advice and encouragement about just that. Charlie Meacham has an extraordinary resume, including partner in a law firm, serving as chairman and CEO of Taft Broadcasting Company and its successor, Great American Broadcasting Company. He was commissioner of the Ladies Professional Golf Association, the LPGA. He served on several boards, including more than a quarter century at the J.M. Smucker Company. Yes, with a name like that, it has to be good. He's been a 
personal business advisor to the late Arnold Palmer and to golf legend Jack Nicklaus. He's also acted as a personal business advisor to other golf stars like Julie Inkster, Annika Sorenstam, and Dottie Pepper. And in 2000, he was named a great living Cincinnatan. I think I said that right. The highest honor that can be awarded by the city of Cincinnati. But although Charlie would have every reason to be full of himself, he is anything but stuffy. His speaking style relies heavily upon anecdotes and stories. He has gathered some of the best of those in a book called Total Anecdotal. We'll talk about that today. He states that his goal these days is to make you a better speaker and writer. I say, yeah, kind of. It's that and more. Charlie Meacham has engaging stories, anecdotes, and powerful lessons to also help us to be better leaders. Charlie, welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast. It's a genuine pleasure for me to be with you. I was just sitting here thinking that after that introduction, we I should probably say thank you and we go dark. <laughs> Thanks, ladies and gentlemen. Please tip your waiters and waitresses well. <laughs> so. Right. Charlie, there's so many things that we could touch upon here. You've had such a breadth of experiences and I think a lot of wisdom and guidance to offer us. There was one story I've heard you tell, and I think it may be a great place to start. So, so many of our message manager listeners are running businesses, running teams, trying to build their influence and build what they can do for others. And one of the most common maxims in sales, speaking, leadership is the first sale you make is to yourself. Basically, you have to believe in the value of what you offer before you can represent it to someone else. When you assume the role of commissioner of the LPGA, the Ladies Professional Golf Association, what I've heard is you had one of those types of moments. Talk about what that was like, how you came into that role, and when you were first meeting with the members of the LPGA. I'm happy to share that story because it's one of my favorite stories, not just because of the response, but also because I think the players understood it and reacted. When I became commissioner of the LPGA, the LPGA was struggling. The commissioner that had preceded me, they had parted company with, and the media was beating up on them pretty good about that. But probably even more so, that was about the time that the originally called Senior Tour came into being. So the LPGA, in competing for viewers and sponsors and fans, was not only competing at that point with the uh, PGA Tour, but suddenly a tour made up of the legends of golf, Palmer, Player, Nicholas, and on and on. So obviously my sense was the players really needed some uh, real encouragement. So at the first player meeting, a player got up and said, Mr. Meacham, what do you think is our greatest challenge? our greatest problem. And I said, well, you know, I haven't been here very long, but I've been here long enough to believe that your problem is that you have a massive institutional inferiority complex. And by that, I mean, you're spending a lot of time worrying about what the media is saying about you. You're worrying a lot about what the uh, other tours are, are doing that compete with you. That's no way to do it. The PGA Tour is, and the Senior Tour is not going to 
spend much time thinking about how to help you. Nor is the media. That's not their job. I think what you've got to do is start really feeling good about yourself, being proud of yourself, being convinced that you are good because God knows you are. So when you walk out of this room, I want you to walk with a little stronger step, a little higher head, believing in yourself and knowing that that is going to really pay off. Well, to my delight and amazement, they understood it. They were in no way offended by it. They seemed to be surprised by the insights that I was bringing to it. And from then on, it was a whole different ballgame. And I really believe that the players began believing in themselves, which, as you have already said, without that, forget it. (laughs) And I would imagine coming into that, a lot of those players did not know you. You were coming in from business and law. So I would imagine hearing that from you gave them more confidence that you got them. In other words, you appreciated what they did. You could offer some guidance to them, but it wasn't focusing on trying to fix some perceived weaknesses. But from your standpoint, it's like, let's appreciate what we do well. You be you, and I'll do my job. Exactly. And I, had a, I think I had a great advantage. I may not have understood it that soon, but I was, I was older than most of these ladies' fathers, probably as old as some of their grandfathers, because I was was 60 years old when I took the job. Plus, they knew of my background. And I think they took it seriously because they knew that, that I had walked the walk and that I understood motivation. I understood what it took to pick yourself up off the ground and, and march with some confidence. I think I had those advantages. And To your credit, and I think this is a good leadership maxim as well, although you had that implicit knowledge, you had some wisdom, you had some seasoning, you could see that organization and the players differently maybe than they saw themselves, but you did not make it about you. The story that you told there, it wasn't as if you're riding in on a horse saying, aren't you glad that I'm here to to save the LPGA, it was a sense of, no, I I just want to create an atmosphere where you can get the most value possible and you can be all you're supposed to be. Anybody who suggests that they alone can fix anything, in my opinion, are missing a major issue. The only way a good leader can lead is having strong followers. And I've always said, to digress just a little bit, Jim, but I've said that To me, there are three different kinds of leaders. One is those who lead by intimidation. People are afraid to challenge them. Second type of leader is one that leads by bribery. Is pay their people so much that people can't afford to challenge them because they don't want to lose that, that job. And the third is people who follow you because they believe in you and don't want to let you down. And I've always said that Problem with the first two types of leaders is that when you get into a real tough jam and you look behind you, you're probably not going to see many people, if any. The third type, you look behind you, you'll have a whole army there because they want you to succeed because they know if you succeed, so will they. So I'm digressing a bit, but I hope it's on point. And I think that's part of what we'll talk about today, which is 
speaking and presentation and comfort as you're in those important conversations. But I think there's some larger lessons about leadership and and uh, the benefits of that and ways to go about it. I'm yeah. curious, and this is a, a little bit of a segue, Charlie, but you talk a lot about preparation and the best ways, whether it be for a speech or a big meeting where you're going to at some point be leading the conversation, you're going to be talking to a group of people. And I, I wondered about if you can think back to that time when you first took over and you were having that meeting, do you remember what was your preparation for that? Then I'll get to your your general guidance to uh, our listeners about how to prepare for an important speech or, or meeting. Do you remember what that was like? Well, I was I was a little bit nervous because it was my first player meeting. And this is literally a meeting where all the players come in. And in the past, I was told that some of those meetings had been pretty raucous and pretty uh, unpleasant. I was determined to not let that happen. And I did take advantage, I think, of, of my age and the fact that, by the way, I should have alluded to this. The company I was had run before, TAP Broadcasting Company, actually sponsored the LPGA Championship for 10 years at our course golf course we owned in Cincinnati. So although I didn't know a huge number of players, many of them knew me and knew that I knew something about the organization. So I prepared, as I always tried to do, by just being sure they understood that I understood them and that I really appreciated the issues they were facing. Interesting. So let's talk about preparation for a speech or a performance, if you will. For a lot of us, that can take different formats. It could be being on a stage or being up in front of a group of people for a scheduled meeting. might be a business presentation. Might right. be a demo. You may be uh, talking to a community group, or you're serving on the board of some group, and they're looking to you for some guidance or advice. There are different ends of the spectrum when it comes to preparation. How to prepare? You can, on the one side of things, Charlie, you could script it out down to the nth detail, memorize it, be ready to read it. The other end of it is you wing it. All right, yeah. you can. Say, oh, I'll just kind of come up with that. Yeah, I have found. And I believe you have found that that neither of those extremes is very effective. One, yeah. and one end is robotic and the other is, no, you won't think of the right thing to say in the moment. You talk about a little different approach about having bullet points, some stories, some examples, having a structure, but allowing yourself to understand the room, understand the context. So could you talk a little about your general advice yeah. when there's an important presentation, important performance that you need to make, what's the best way to, to prepare for that? It's an excellent point, and one that I do treat this in uh, total anecdotal, even down to the point of suggesting several opening lines. And I won't go into that deeply, but the reason I feel strongly about that is that I've always felt if you get your audience to feel early on that, hey, this this guy looks like he's going to be okay, or I think I'm going to enjoy listening to this gal. So I suggest several opening lines in Total Anecdotal that can help you get there. But back to the basic issue of preparation. I totally agree with you. Memorization and winging it are both killers. 
They're both quick way to destroy your yourself in front of a lot of people. I've had several examples in my life, and these were both very, very bright people, tried to memorize the speeches that they were about to give and panicked during the speech because they'd forgotten something. And in one case, the guy passed out at the podium. <laughs> you kind of lose control of the conversation when you lose consciousness. <laughs> that was, we all cleared our throats and had dessert. <laughs> but it was very embarrassing. And the other extreme is almost worse in some ways because if you wing it, you just can't convince people that you're prepared. And if there's one thing in preparation for a speech, It's to be prepared. Know your subject. Feel comfortable that you know your your subject better than your audience. Two or three times in my life, not never purposefully, but two or three times I found myself talking to an audience that I knew knew more about the subject than I did. And that's not good. So the in-betweens are bullet points and then uh, maybe a pseudo winging it where you're not really winging it. And the two kind of go together. As you noted, I spent about 10 years with Arnold Palmer, who had a tremendous ability to communicate. But it wasn't by accident. His assistant, a marvelous man named Doc Giffen, put together talking points for Arnold. And he would have them on a three-by-five card next to the podium. He didn't look at them all the time, but he knew them. He rehearsed them, if you will. And it made him a great, great speaker because he could communicate with the audience. The other thing about memorizing and winging it is that more often than not, you don't make eye contact in the same way that you do with bullet points. And eye contact with your audience is really, really critical. So those are all bits and pieces. I could go on for the rest of the day with instructions and ideas on speaking. For example, I'll give you another. This is not directly on point, but it's awfully important. Two things. Most people speak faster than they realize they're speaking. And my advice is always slow down when you're speaking. Pretend you're in slow-mo, if you will. And you'll be doing it about right. The other suggestion I have is what I call putting a period at the end of a sentence. And by that I mean, if you don't end a sentence and leave it dangling, then you'll feel that you've got to somehow complete it. And I've seen a number of particularly professional athletes who, because they wing it on the golf course or the football field or whatever, think they can wing it when they're speaking. And I'll give you a good example. Say you ask a golfer after his round, well, now, what did you hit on number four? If he says, well, I hit a pretty good three iron and, and is is a throwaway. And the problem is he's got to go on then and say something else. And it usually comes out as gibberish. If, in other hand, he said, well, first I use a four-iron. Oh, my next club, I had a 
wedge, period, and then two putts, period. So those, Jim, are a few uh, tips on uh, speaking that I've learned, in some cases, the hard way over over the years. (laughs) Well, those are great, Charlie, and I I find those as well. I find that people speaking too quickly and the use of those filler words that you were talking about, so, and, Mm -hmm. no, that those are oftentimes a a product of people being nervous in the moment and they feel like they'll lose their train of thought. I believe people, this generation speaks more quickly as a matter of course in just everyday life than probably was the case a couple of generations back. I I don't know that. You might have a thought on that as well. The other thing that I see is there is this thing called high-rising terminal or upspeak. So if you're going to make a declaration, it sounds like a question because you're you're yeah. treating it rather than a declaration. You're treating it more like a question. So yep. Charlie, yeah. I, I see that sometimes. And that's a, a natural thing. And, and I, I find people who say, well, it's inclusive and it's natural and it's conversational. But I do think that the combination of things that what you've mentioned here, sometimes speaking too quickly, using filler words, being uncomfortable with just a beat of pausing Mm -hmm. and and making your point and asserting what you know or what you believe with a degree of confidence. All of those things together, I think, separate people who are very effective in speaking and in conversation from those who are unfortunately less so. You're absolutely correct. And, uh, Again, feeling confident, and that comes from, A, really knowing your subject, and I think, B, feeling at ease and letting your audience know that you really are hoping to do something that they will enjoy, and uh, not lecture people, not condescend. You know, you're, you're just one of the guys, and I'm going to share with you some, uh, some thoughts and ideas that I think have been helpful to me. The important thing, again, to reemphasize that, you want to start out with your audience feeling, I think I'm going to like this guy, or I'm really looking forward to what this gal has to say. So in total anecdotal, as I said, I suggest several ways to start it out. But you've got to establish that rapport with the audience, and then everything from there is downhill. Excellent, Charlie. There are at least two big categories of things that I want us to talk about while we have the time today. Your latest book, Total Anecdotal, is, guess what, about anecdotes, stories, (laughs) experiences that you've had. One of the things that I have found that make leaders and make teams effective is they have something on the order of a story bank, or they have personal stories or things that they can refer to that they can sprinkle in, insert, or take out of certain conversations that their audience, whether it's audience of one or audience of many, will find engaging and relevant to them. So this idea, if you're a speaker, presenter, or just a leader who finds themselves in these sorts of situations, lots of times having something that's at the ready that you know works in different areas, and you've organized those by topic, So I'll let you talk about some anecdotes because that's what your latest book is about. But I I will have you, if if you would, there were three of them that I picked out. And listeners, there there are, this is a mix of brief, pithy quotes, personal experiences that Charlie has that illustrate 
in an engaging sort of way, oftentimes the frailties of the human condition right. uh, in business. So I invite you to, to check it out. The three that I were immediately drawn to, one of them about diffusing uncomfortable situations. Another one is about you don't have to yell in order to be a coach or a leader. And the last one is the limits of marketing and packaging. I'll mm-hmm. take these in order. So the first one was from a Smucker's shareholder meeting. It was an uncomfortable situation and a, and a lady who knew the, the corporate leader. As I recall the story, Charlie had this idea about putting Smucker's jelly in itty bitty jars. And wouldn't that be a great idea? So as you're the leader, you want to uh, not, and this can be, imagine if you're giving a talk or making a presentation and somebody asks a question that you think is off track or whatever, you want to not call it out. You want to honor the other person, but using humor can really diffuse it. If you will share that story and, and the kinds of situations where you think it would work well. It's a great story and a great memory. Smuckers used to have their annual meetings, I think at Worcester College in Ohio, and they would uh, invite people from the local area, and they usually have, oh gosh, four or 500 people, most of whom were friends. So one day at an annual meeting, a lady got up, and at that time, a man named Paul Smucker was the CEO. He was the grandfather of the current CEO, and I think probably most people would say is the man who really took the company from a small peddler of apple butter to a masterful position in the, in the grocery business. And she raised her hand and she said, Paul, uh, you know me, I'm Mabel Jones. You and I went to school together and I really love your products. But she said, I've got one problem all of your jams and jellies are put up in in big jars. And us older people, we really have trouble with that because we can't handle the big jars. Couldn't you put your jams and jellies up in itty-bitty jars? Well, the audience, of course, applauded and laughed. And Paul, I thought, Paul, how are you going to deal with this? So Paul very quietly said, Mabel, so good to see you again. I sure do remember our times together at school. And you've got a very good question. We're going to really take a look at it. But I got to tell you this, we could certainly put up our jams and jellies in itty bitty jars. But I have to tell you, if we did that, we'd have to pay itty bitty dividends. (laughs) (laughs) The whole room just went nuts. And, And Mabel among them, she laughed as hard as anybody. So I've often thought, what a marvelous, and Paul was good at that. He, uh, he did it in a number of other situations. I remember one time I was chairman of the Smucker Compensation Committee, a compensation of, of executives. And one day at a meeting, somebody got up and asked questions about salary of some of the senior executives. And Paul said, well, that's a wonderful question. This is so-and-so. Mr. Meacham is the chairman of our compensation committee. You should go over and talk to him. And they made a beeline for me as soon as the meeting was over. Thanks a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Right. The second one, and I think that's a good example. You mentioned this person was really good about doing that in the moment. And there may be some of us who might think, I wouldn't be so quick or so adept in the moment of how to do it. But it seemed to me the principle was 
He approached it in good humor. He used yeah. the language that the lady had, had used, but he also basically made it about how everyone here in this room has a shared interest in the dividends exactly. <laughs> coming through. We're at a shareholders exactly. meeting. And so framing it that way, it seemed to me a, a, a very it, human and humane way to approach it. And again, humor is the key. He didn't insult her in any way. He managed to disagree with her without making her look uninformed or petty. So uh, it's a trait that you, no one, I suppose, is born with it. Some are better at it than others, but it's worth working at. And having anecdotes in your uh, repertoire is a pretty good way to do it. The second one that, that jumped at me, and, and part of it is a for personal reason, Charlie, um, I yeah. had the great honor and pleasure of knowing the late Otto Graham and his mm -hmm. wife, Beverly. Just had a chance to meet them. And to the extent that the Grahams actually attended my wife, Allison, our, our wedding. And so I thought I was so impressed. And if you look back at Otto Graham, not only one of the most accomplished quarterbacks in NFL history, actually pre-merger, but just an accomplished athlete across sports and a, a really great guy. You tell yeah. a story about him and, you know, everybody messes up. And the head coach of the Cleveland Browns way back in the day was Paul Brown, who was a just iconic, epic figure in the birth of professional football in the growth of it. You shared the fact that Paul Brown had a little different leadership style. So he wasn't, he wasn't like some of the coaches today where he's you know, running up and down the sideline and yelling and, and uh, doing all of that. He was their very different kind of presence, wasn't he? Unique, and I'm not sure ever been really duplicated. I realize that if Paul were coaching today, he would do some things differently. But by and large, he would do fundamentally what he did then. He became a very good friend of mine because one of my happiest memories as a young lawyer was doing the deal that brought, the, uh, brought Paul back to Cincinnati to start the Bengals. I also got to know Otto at a cocktail party one night. I said to Otto, uh, Otto, uh, when you screwed up, and even great players like you do it now and then, did Paul yell and scream at you? And he laughed and he said, Paul never yelled and screamed at anybody. He would just look at you and turn and walk away as though I can't even stand to lay eyes on you. <laughs> it still just breaks me up when I tell it because that was exactly what he did. And that was much, much more difficult to deal with than uh, if he had yelled and screamed. And gets back to that, that type of leader that you would not want to let down. And so That's uh, right. obviously That's having right. a ton of credibility you told a story about the meeting where the boss at the dog food company was trying to figure out why they weren't selling enough dog food. This is one of my all-time favorite stories. And you're right, they were having a sales meeting, and sales had been pretty lousy. And the CEO really was ripping the, the salespeople. And he said, I, don't, I just don't get it. We've got the greatest packaging, the greatest possible advertising. We've got everything. What's the problem? And nobody ventured. And then finally, a little guy in the back of the audience put his hand up and he said, sir, the dogs don't like it. <laughs> 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 and 
<laughs> it's one of those things at first you think, what does that mean? And then, of course, if you're not making a product that people like, doesn't matter what else you do. And by the way, also, I think it's in total anecdotal story about the then CEO of Procter Gamble, who given an award for marketing. He made it a line that I have never forgotten. He said, we at Procter & Gamble have come to understand that the only form of truly successful marketing is superior product performance. And that's just another way of saying the dogs don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> and kudos to the, the person in the back of the room who had the courage to raise his hand and, and say, but the dogs don't like the dogs. Exactly. <laughs> since, since Every leader enough. needs that person. I, I, I just hope the guy didn't get fired. <laughs> I, don't I don't know what happened. I remember as a, a young kid that used to play some golf and followed golf that with Gary Player, one of the iconic Hall of Fame players, just really a, socially conscious in a way that, uh, at least outwardly, that a lot of athletes were not back in the day. He, he yes. came from South Africa and apartheid was very real at that time. And I seem to recall Gary Player wore all black as his visible you would call it protest or raising awareness or raising consciousness in a way that was most effective in the day. You can talk a little about that experience with Gary, because you're close to the game of golf, but then also the progression to the modern day about athletes and teams using their own platforms now to talk about social issues. Well, to start with Gary, he is a very bright person. I know him reasonably well. Uh, he and Arnold with whom I spent a lot of time, we were very close friends. Carrie had a, and has, I think, a very acute social conscience. And he didn't make any bones about expressing it, although never in, a, in an ugly or a, or a patronizing way. But he was doing things back when very few others were. There are, what do I say, light years of change from those days to now, because now players in increasing numbers, black, white, Latino, whatever, are really expressing themselves. And I, I would have a hunch in the next year or two, there are going to be some very tense moments. The national anthem being a, a good example, the news at NASCAR. But I, I'm getting a sense that players irrespective of their color, are beginning to really speak out and stand out. And, you know, when you think about it, that's not too surprising. Because if you look at, say, professional football or basketball teams, or baseball, virtually any sport, the people of color and, and white people are thrown together every day, every night working for and with and about one another. So it doesn't surprise me in the least to find professional athletes saying, you know, this has gone far enough. We've got to step out and really do the right thing. I remember a long time ago, a man who's sort of a mentor of mine way back was telling me, he said, Charlie, in the final analysis, when you make decisions, just do the right thing. And I remember saying, well, sir, how do you know? 
he kind of smiled and said, believe me, you'll know. And I found that to be true. So uh, I think we're right on the cusp of some really major moves in the world we're talking about. They won't all be pleasant. They won't all be peaceful, but they're going to happen. I would imagine, Charlie, I, I don't know this to be the case. You can confirm or deny that a lot of the pressures, say back in the day of a, of a Gary player or Olympic athletes protesting on, uh, on the winner's stand, like, most yeah. of the pressures were basically like, no, 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 keep sports sports, keep politics out of it. There were very few media outlets. People did not own their own platforms. They didn't have their own ways of communicating directly with fans and with the consuming public. So they had less control, right? So right, right. the media were truly mediating. Whereas today, many of the, the biggest athletes are bigger than the media companies covering them. And, so, and, and in fact, I think I, I well, I'm pretty sure I see in, in lots of areas it's more of if an athlete, and I'm just, I'm pulling a name out. I'm winging it, Charlie, when I should never, okay. never do that. But I think like Mike Trout, who is arguably the, the yeah, best sure. major league baseball player right now, but he's not, a, he, not an effusive person. He's really, uh, he doesn't right. talk about himself that much. He doesn't get into those sorts of things. Then the conversation becomes more like, oh, but you have this huge platform. Why aren't you speaking out more? The, yeah. the pressure, I think, more so is to adopt positions and voice your opinion on these. Do you see a similar change that the pendulum has come back that way? It's a ongoing thing. When the LeBron Jameses of the world and the Michael Jordans, and you could have their counterparts in other sports, begin stepping out and stepping up. And these are not great athletes only. These are smart guys. These are intelligent guys. And again, they live their life in a biracial society. So I think if there ever was a dam to be broken, I think it's broken. And the course it takes remains to be seen, but it's there. Now, by the way, speaking earlier of Paul Brown, Paul Brown was totally colorblind, totally. He was instrumental in drafting a number of black players and I asked him one time, you have to be a pretty old Browns fan to totally uh, understand this. But I said, Paul, who was the greatest athlete football player you ever coached? And I had several names in mind, but none of them came out of his mouth. He said, to, Charlie, it's hard to pick one out, but if I had to, I'd, I'd have to say Marion Motley. Now, I don't know if that name, Marion Motley, means anything to you, but Marion Motley was the fullback for the Cleveland Browns, and that was in a day when they played both ways. He was also an all-star linebacker. So Paul was totally colorblind, and I think we're just, we're just on the threshold of seeing this thing become much, much stronger and much more visible on the point of view of athletes. Charlie, I'd like to ask you one, it's complete hypothetical. You can <laughs> take it, you can make it up, whatever you would <laughs> think. But if the calendar had sped up and you were coming in as commissioner of a sports league, LPGA or others, and the question is, 
how are you going to be in touch with social issues? What are we going to do proactively? What are you going to quote unquote allow the players and sponsors to do? Would you have any any guidance? What do you what do you think would be the approach? You can pick a league or just think about it at an even higher level. How yeah. do you balance? Because if you do the wrong thing or if you don't speak up when you're supposed to speak up, then right. downside is certainly there. But this is the world that uh, of, of pro sports and big business. There's no obviously simple answer. I would suggest that if you study the reactions and the policies of the heads of the various major sporting organizations, you will find a couple that have done it very well and a couple that have not. And that's probably natural. But I think the player group today and the player group 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago is dramatically different. And I'm sure if I were going back to the LPGA today, I would find the same thing there. Golf, of course, has really not seriously come to grips with the uh, black-white issue, which is kind of ironic because their super leader over the last 15 years has been a black. But I think that what the leaders of sports are going to have to recognize is you can't temporize. That doesn't mean you got to go out and do everything that everybody wants you to do. But you've got to be sure that you understand what your constituents, if you will, your players, want and believe from you, and then give it that kind of leadership. Don't pussyfoot on it. Don't, as I say, play around with it, deal with it. And more often than not, if you do that, it'll work out okay. But it, you can find some pretty good examples in sports leaders who have done it well and those I think who have not, at least not yet. Message manager listeners, it's Charlie Meacham with a lot of sage advice and a lot of great observations. His latest book is called Total Anecdotal, a fun and unique guide to help you become a better speaker and writer. From our conversation today, I think it's, as you've heard, it's guidance on not just becoming a better speaker and writer, but lots of leadership lessons and, and lessons of how to use language and a great example to help other people follow you and to accomplish great things. Charlie, this has been a delight. Could you talk a little bit about the book, your previous yeah. books and yeah. where people can find those and keep up with you and who knows what you're going to be running next? Well, I, I, uh, you can get the book, Total Anecdotal, on uh, Amazon, I presume, Barnes & Noble, and then uh, probably directly from my website. I have a website. The uh, genesis of the book, really, was a one of my sons-in-law who came to me one day and he said, Pop, uh, I've watched you speak, and I know you like to use anecdotes to illustrate the points you're trying to make. And I said, yeah, I've always felt that was a good idea. And if the anecdote can be a little humorous, that's even better. So he said, uh, I'm a, a young executive. I need that. Could you put together sort of an index, dictionary, glossary, of anecdotes under categories. And I said, yeah, I could do that. So that's what total anecdotal is. And if you want to look for an anecdote to use it involving ego, you can look under ego, whatever you need. The other book called Who's That with Charlie? 
I wrote that about, I guess, 10 years ago, maybe less, maybe eight years ago. And it's not a memoir. It rather is a uh, compilation of memories that I've had of friendships that I've enjoyed over the years. Some with some very famous people, some not, but all that have contributed to my life. And people have said to me, well, where did you get the title? And I said, well, when I finished the book, I thought title is going to be tough. What am I going to call this? And then I remembered an old joke about the guy that went to Rome and completely by accident had an audience picture taken with the Pope. Well, he was so thrilled. He came home and he's showing this picture to all his friends, not saying that it was an accident. And they all say, oh, Charlie, that's, that's wonderful. That's terrific. And finally, the last guy that looked at it said, well, Charlie, that's a great picture, but who's that guy with you? <laughs> I've always thought, who's that guy with Charlie? That's the way to do it. So we did it that way. And he sure has an impressive white outfit on, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And uh, by the way, uh, that book is also still, still in print and on Amazon. We will have all of those links in our show description. Charlie, let me just uh, offer up my thanks again. This is a, a, a joy to be able to connect with you and hear some of the anecdotes and hear some of your guidance for, for leaders and communicators. Thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. It really has been my pleasure. And you have exemplified what I said earlier about the importance of preparation. You have prepared for this podcast. You read the book. You understand a lot about me. Your stories were thoughtful, chosen, I thought, well. And so you are the shining example of being prepared and, for that matter, being intelligent and speaking slowly. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. And I appreciate the, uh, the gratuitous uh, compliment the host moment here. <laughs> but, but coming from you, Charlie, that's, uh, that's high praise. I really do appreciate it. And I hope we get a chance to chat again soon. Anytime you would like me to come back and uh, share some more stories, I'd be more than pleased to do it. Thanks to you for joining us on the podcast, whether you are a veteran returning message manager listener, perhaps this is your first time in. We have new listeners coming in through various means all the time. I hope that you will share your five-star rating and review if you find the podcast valuable. That helps other professionals in your position to be able to Find us and get value from it as well. And please subscribe if you haven't done so already. That makes sure that you won't miss a thing. Whatever the case, I hope that you continue to find ideas for honing your message, growing your base of messengers, and growing your business. You can dig in more deeply by reading or listening to my book, The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. You can find it, again, wherever business books are sold. You can even check out a free sampler on my website, jimcar.com. I would welcome your connection on LinkedIn, and I would appreciate hearing your ideas for future guests and topics. What would be helpful to you? You can email me directly at jim at jimcar.com. My direct mobile number is also on the website. So let's talk. And if you're feeling the urgency now to address those everyday business messages and adapt to this new environment, then let's examine some options. I have a number of message leadership and growth programs, which I deliver virtually and in person, so that you and everyone around your business 
can likewise be comfortable and effective in their customer conversations in all of the ways that they will be happening. Until next time, message managers, thanks for joining the conversation. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at manageyourmessagepodcast.com and jimcar.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often. <laughs>